Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Underbelly is looking for a product design director in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ithaca Harbors is looking for a user researcher for their search and discovery team in New York City or Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you're looking for remote work, Uber is looking for a product designer for the Uber Freight team. 36 Creative out of the greater Boston area is looking for a senior designer. And Brave Achievers is looking for design students for Go Create USA, a no-fee design training program for Black American youth. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these positions. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And this week's guest is the one and only Antoinette Carroll, social entrepreneur, equity designer, and the president and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab out of St. Louis, Missouri. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Antoinette Curl. I am the founder, president, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab. I also run, out, honestly, entirely too many businesses. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know how I even sleep. I'm the co-founder, co-director of Ant Design. I'm also the founding chair of a foundation that my family and I founded in response to the murder of my 14-year-old brother called the Oscar Johnson III Youth Hope Foundation. And I was the co-founder and co-director of Design Plus Diversity, LLC. I have to say, I'm really excited just to have you back on the show. I think over the years since I've done Revision Path, you've probably been one of the top, if not the most requested guests to have on the show. And I had been telling people like, well, I talked to Antoinette back in 2014, but I think now given just the state of the world and everything else that's happened in the design industry and with your career since then, it's good to have this update. But I mean, you, you've talked to me before anything given like really popped off. Like you, you had that foresight. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm excited to be back and also very thankful and humbled that you saw something even back then before everything even happened. So thank you. Oh, thank you. How are you holding up during this time? I mean, this pandemic, I feel like has turned everyone's world upside down. It did. And it didn't at the same time. So I'm pretty sure my husband is actually happier now, <laughs> uh, <since laughs> the pandemic happened. It was interesting. Last fall, uh, I did. I started to do the study of how much travel I was doing, and I actually was traveling over a hundred days a year. It was actually more around 120 on average. 
And my husband made his Christmas wish was for me to be home for a year. And I kept telling him that is never, ever going to happen. (laughs) I apologize to everyone for unfortunately, maybe unwillingly being part of the reason the pandemic is keeping people home. Maybe my husband put something in the air to be like, (laughs) (laughs) it's been good for me personally, because I'm home more with my husband and my sons. Professionally, there was, were some challenges where, at Creative Reaction Lab, we lost the majority of our clients. And then due to the continuous murder of Black people within the United States, it actually then increased our clients. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's been an ebb and flow. Uh, I, my answer to most folks usually is that I'm surviving and thriving at the same time. And really just being mindful of like, what's my purpose? Why do I do what I do? And just being consistent with that and just letting that kind of push me through. Now, you mentioned Creative Reaction Lab, which, you know, when we had you back on the show in 2014, you hadn't even started Creative Reaction Lab yet. You were working for Diversity Awareness Partnership. Let's go back a little bit to that time. Like, when I think back to then, I'm curious, what was the catalyst behind you starting Creative Reaction Lab? Yeah, and I think a lot of people have heard the story, like the reality that I found a Creative Reaction Lab in response to the uprising in Ferguson. When we talked, I want to say it was probably June of 2014. And then the uprising in Ferguson began in August. So wow. Creative Reaction Lab wasn't an idea at that time, but it definitely became more real in August itself, uh, especially with my family and I having been actual like former Ferguson, I mean, residents of Ferguson. We literally moved out of Ferguson six months prior to the uprising. And so we moved out in February. You and I had the interview in June and then everything happened in August. So 2014 was definitely an interesting year. Professionally, it was an interesting year personally because my husband lost his mom that year. And so it was a time where I was definitely going through a lot of reflection and changes. And I think that started to show up in the institution of Creative Reaction Lab, Mm. which, you know, really was centering around how do we one center living expertise and not just professional academic pedigree, which as someone that was working in diversity and inclusion, I was asked to be at the table because of that title. And no one ever asked me about my experience of being a black woman. No one ever asked me about my experience of being a former Ferguson resident and the intersection of that. And that really bothered me because I had that living knowledge that would have been very useful in discussions and yet it felt like it was devalued. And so I wanted to create a space where um, community members, creative professionals more so at that time, technologists at that time could come together and come up with their own interventions around St. Louis's racial divide. And it then catapulted into something I never imagined. Creative Reaction Lab was the name of the event, not a business. <laughs> I didn't even plan on starting a business at that time, but Everything works out the way it's supposed to. And here we are six years later. How has Creative Reaction Lab really grown since that time? Oh, so much. (laughs) So much. So it was late 2016. So I actually left Diversity Awareness Partnership December 2014 and went with the 24-hour model for around two more years, um, looking at domestic violence as a topic of focus. Also, we did gun violence is another topic of focus. And then it was late 2016 that we decided to 
uh, more so refine our focus and say, okay, it's not enough to just focus on development of interventions, but more so, which is traditional design model, right? Like let's create something. Mm -hmm. But it was, so it's like, okay, we could develop the intervention, but first we need to also focus on the people and supporting them and shifting their power and supporting them and centering their living expertise, supporting them and building their humility to become empathetic. And also acknowledging that the systems that we were addressing, particularly around racial and health inequities now are like, these systems have been around for centuries. And so we can't just focus on these professionals or people with term limits and think that we're all of a sudden going to have an, an equitable society. That's just not going to happen. And so we decided to focus on Black and Latinx youth and thinking about they will be the ones that be able to do this work in a long haul to, to honestly shift mindsets earlier. And so that has been our focus for the last three years. And I couldn't be happier that we made that decision. It was the right decision. And that then also led to us pioneering a new form of creative problem solving called Equity Center Community Design that is now being used around the world. And I am not exaggerating. We've literally had phone calls with people in Fiji about our framework mm. and really looking at how do we bring the positives of the design field, which is around um action, doing, testing, prototyping, you know, movement, and also the positives of the diversity, equity, inclusion field, which is around consciousness raising. Also built, like I said, reflecting on your biases, reflecting on your privileges, and also thinking about who's in the room and how identities show up in the space, as well as history, healing, power dynamics. And so we merged that into a framework of equity-centered community design. And so that's our curriculum. And that is also something we open source for others to use within their own communities. Wow. Worldwide. That is awesome. That is really, really awesome. What sort of new endeavors are on the horizon for Creative Reaction Lab? I feel like now with this pandemic, a lot of companies are either pivoting to different models or they're now discovering new ways of connecting with customers and clients. Yeah, I will say it's been interesting because last summer, we actually decided to explore what does virtual engagement look like. So maybe we knew something was coming. I don't know. But we, we started to explore that. And part of it was because, again, with our, fr our, our framework and the field guide that we created around our framework, extending worldwide, we kept receiving messages from folks saying, I want to learn this. I want to bring this to our young leaders. I want to do this in my work environment, but you only do work domestically, which I will be very honest, there's intentionality of us doing work in the United States, particularly with youth. We have not changed that model that will remain consistent because we believe that we should not be going into other people's communities that we don't have any knowledge of that honestly have this colonization savior complexity mindset. We, we completely shatter that. We don't even support it. And so our work with youth is 100% United States and we also recognize that, again, to get to an equitable society, it, it, it's not going to be just a work of Creative Reaction Lab, but a work of a lot of people and a lot of institutions. And so we decided to explore virtual, did research on it for about six months, and then the pandemic kind of rose up. Uh, and so we essentially rolled out some of the things we were looking into. So we uh, rolled out our Redesigners in Action webinar series, which so far has already had over 2,000 attendees with these webinar series. Also, 
Uh, surprisingly, we released one that was just going to be a one-off called How Design Thinking Protects White Supremacy. Mm. That one has taken off so much that we've had to do now at this point, five different encores all the way to December. We are sold out all the way through November. We have clients now that are asking specifically for that webinar for their own internal culture. And so that has led to kind kind of more dissemination of our framework. And again, at the end of the day, our focus is on youth. And so the main three programs that we have is our Seeds of Power Fellowship Program, which these are alumni of Creative Reaction Lab that are the co-facilitators of all of these engagements I just mentioned. So they are the ones in the front of the room with these corporations, with these institutions, and shifting power and having them listen to young people in leadership. So that is one of our intentional models of power shifting. But then we also have our Redesigning Education for Racial Equity and Social Healing Program, which is in short, refresh because it's too long. (laughs) (laughs) And that is us actually working with educators, whether it's higher ed, high school, they can be in the classroom. They also can be in the community. So on the ground educators, and they are using equity center community design to actually mobilize their youth around racial and health inequities. And particularly this year, they're looking at three topics related to COVID. Uh, One is technology access um, or addressing digital redlining. Uh, Another is limited healthy food access or addressing food apartheid. And then the third one is looking at, what is it, reimagining education. And then there's a standing fourth one that's in all of the program, all years of the program, which is increasing racial diversity in the actual education field that is more representative of the youth that they're serving. And so that is our flagship. And then our last main youth program is our community design apprenticeship program that is with formerly incarcerated and criminal justice system, Black and Latinx youth. And it's a nine-month leadership development program, but they also are using community organizing principles and our framework to address a hyper-local issue and develop their own interventions around it. Wow. (laughs) I I don't mean to give such like basic responses to all of this, but I mean, you are tackling so many like really important issues right now and to juggle all of that especially now in the midst of this current time i mean this is a lot to take on at once yeah (laughs) yes and you know it's a team and you know i will be honest i don't remember the year i want to say it was maybe two years ago i was speaking at harvard's black and design conference we were actually there together yeah and when we were like one of the select nonprofits, because we are a nonprofit, most people think we're for profit, but we're actually a nonprofit organization. And uh, we were one of the select groups that people were kind of doing a hackathon around to help us improve. And it was so surprising to the group we were working with that essentially I was the only like full time team member and I wasn't even paid yet for my job. And they were like, wait, so you all have done all this and it's just volunteers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I literally just started getting paid from Creative Reaction Lab in 2000, late 2017, full-time summer 2018. And now we've gone from essentially one and a half team members to we're actually about to open applications, hopefully, for four new staff members in addition to the fact that we also have 
three full-time in office, four part-time, and six full-time AmeriCorps Vistas, as well as summer staff. So it's we have grown a lot in a little bit of time that we've had. And we've always been able to do a lot more, uh, even with the little bit of staff we have. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like the staff? Like how did you build a team to help support all of this? I will say, you know, there's, there's positives and negatives in the way that we approach the team. So, and that's me being completely vulnerable and transparent because I'm a first time entrepreneur. I'm learning while doing. And so we are quote unquote, a younger team which again is part of our mission, focusing on youth anyway. But I will say that majority of our team members are based in the St. Louis area. There's intentionality of keeping us headquartered here. I do believe in an investment in the local community and helping building the economy, particularly with more uh, racially diverse representation than just trying to move to these different cities, which we've received quests to relocate to like Bay area. And I'm like, no, Mm. (laughs) I'm like, absolutely not. Like, and there's nothing against these places. It's just, we started in St. Louis. St. Louis is still one of the most segregated city cities in the country. And so it would be irresponsible in my opinion to uplift and move to another city because there might be quote unquote, better funding streams there when recognizing there's a, there's still a need in the city that, kind of gave us the start. And so the staff itself is actually really racially diverse staff. We need to improve on gender. And what I mean by that is we're actually majority women. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we we only have one non-binary individual on the team. We don't have any trans representation, which we need to improve on. And uh, as of right now, we only have two men on the team. And so when I talk about diversity a lot, I, I do, like, for me, it's not just Let's go to the extreme yeah. <laughs> on the opposite end, too, but looking at how do we have a good mix. And so racially wise, we have uh, black, we have Latinx, but I think we could have stronger Latinx. We have white, we have uh, different and uh, Asian identities uh, within, the twe- within the team. And so it, it truly is. And it's, <laughs> again, very intentional mm-hmm. around that because I personally believe we have to be representative of the communities in which we are doing the work. And the last thing I will add is that we also try to find ways where youth are actual decision makers within the team. So it's even down to the nuance of our interns are not called interns. They're called associates. They are sometimes project team leads. They are, they have led to us creating new modules in our framework. They have led to us creating new cultural initiatives they are active team members. And uh, I always try to think about how do we shift power to, again, have focus on our mission, not only externally, but also internally on what we're doing at our culture. Now, everything that you just mentioned, this is just around Creative Reaction Lab, which already sounds like this could be two or three full-time jobs. But (laughs) as you mentioned earlier, you also have another company that you just recently started and designed. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah, so I co-founded and designed with one of my best friends, Timothy Barr-Levins. If anyone follows what's going on with AIGA, which I'm pretty sure we'll talk about in a minute. Oh, we get we getting there. We getting there. Oh, yeah, we getting there. People probably know us more kind of concurrently with that. But we also co-founded the Design Plus Diversity Fellowship Program, 
literally, what was it, three years ago. And so I was the co-founder of Design Plus Diversity LLC with Timothy Hikes. And um, through Design Plus Diversity LLC, Timothy Hikes and I co-founded the conference, a national conference, as well as a podcast that was very, like, it was like a year. It wasn't nowhere near the greatness of Revision Path, but it was like a year, okay? And then we realized editing was a thing, and it's like, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> then we, then Timothy Bar-Levins came and joined the team, and Timothy Bar-Levins and I created the fellowship. And so what we decided to do this year was to transition the fellowship because we ran it two years in partnership and with support from Google, Microsoft, Adobe, et cetera. We are now transitioning it to and design and design is intentionally looking at how do we uh, support black Latinx and indigenous youth that are exploring careers of design for us. Um, it's not in a, in a sense trying to replace what's happening with project osmosis or interactive uh, interact project, you know, like they're doing great work mm-hmm. uh, for us. It's more, once they're at the, at least right now, I can't speak for future, but once they're at like the college age, we're looking at what is, how do we provide them a year of support of mentorship, a year of support of honestly technology access, because we actually do give them uh, different uh, tools, such as like we've given them Microsoft services for the last two years, um, sponsored by Microsoft, uh, Google have given them things, etc. And also supporting them with doing their own social impact and equity projects using their own craft. And so, and design is now more so like with design plus diversity, it was kind of everyone and everything. Whereas with and design is specifically focusing on Black, Latinx, and Indigenous creative youth and helping them on their pipeline. And then in the flip side of that, in the future, we want to also work with institutions to really think about how do they improve their cultures when it comes to also low and mid-level promotion and thinking about retention of young creatives uh, versus you know, <laughs> recruitment, which a lot of them, if, if they're doing that, let's just say that, <laughs> if they're yeah. doing recruitment, many of them only focus on pipeline and don't really think about the retention piece, the promotion piece. Why don't we have more, particularly people of color in leadership in many of these design institutions? Yeah. It sounds like there's a bit of an overlap with and design and with Creative Reaction Lab in that the focus is on youth. Why is that such a like a, a driving kind of force for you? Like, why the focus on youth? That is, you know, I've never had that question before. Thank you, Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> All the interviews I've ever done, I've never had that question. Part of it is what I stated before, which is really thinking about how do we support uh, shifting mindsets earlier. Another thing I, I truly 100% believe in is that youth have actually been behind a lot of the cultural shifts and changes in our society for years. Oh like yeah, they, they, to me, are the architects of change. And when you look at a lot of the uprisings, it's actually the young folks in leadership, the mm-hmm. young folks that are pushing it. But what happens is that the adults tend to come and co-op what they have done and receive recognition for it. Also, you know, it, it, it just, it, I don't know, you're about to maybe get on my soapbox a little bit, but <laughs> it bothers me how we talk about the children are our future. There was even songs about it, right? Like the children are our future and not recognize that they actually can be, you know, the actors of change and impact now and today. 
and have them build that competency and that capacity for change earlier on versus waiting until they get into a certain age or a certain academic or professional pedigree to care about, to care about what they're talking about. And one of the most pivotal or I guess inspirational Ted talks for me was a Ted talk that essentially challenged how we approach creativity. And it was uh, by Sir Ken Robbins uh, Robinson's and in the Ted talk, he talked about how we tend to ask the question what does four plus four equal versus what equals eight? Hmm. And when you look at what equals eight, usually the younger generation is at a what equals eight mindset. And then adults and society and systems tend to push them towards conformity and regiment and status quo to have them shift that mindset to what does four plus four equal, which hmm. is one answer. Right. And so I'm a mom of black boys. I briefly mentioned my brother, you know, and Mm -hmm. and and he actually was a twin as well. And so my younger sister, like I I think about how even in our education system, we literally have have them starting from colorful rugs and collaboration and connection. All the things we say we want in 21st century workers now they have earlier on. And then in our educational system, we are teaching them to straighten the rows, sit in line. And then as time goes on, the classroom starts to look like, to me, more prison setups than mm. they do of invoking creativity. And so, yeah, for me, the work is around youth and supporting them and just honestly amplifying the knowledge and the greatness and the creativity and the imagination that they already have. Because mm-hmm. the ideas they have around possibilities will get us actually to that space of equity and liberation that once you have had all of that sh- kind of shifted out of you, it's like you have to unlearn what you learned of status quo yeah. to get back there, whereas they're already there. And how do we just support them? Yeah, I feel like we're seeing a lot of that from kind of, I guess you could say established professionals right now in the design industry, especially over this last, I don't know, month and a half or so, a lot of this unlearning of, oh, well, this is how it used to be. And now Black Lives Matter. And so (laughs) now I'm thinking of it this way, which, you know, hey, everyone all changes. You know, that's the only constant that we have is that things will change. Yeah. They're putting their journey. Exactly. And with unlearning, like a creative reaction lab, during our staff meetings, we actually set aside a time where everyone have paired discussions on what did they, what have they been working on unlearning in the last month? Mm. And then also even within our performance, if you want to call them performance evaluations, where it's like, what have you unlearned in the last year and how do we continue to support you on that journey? I'm going to flip that question on you. What have you unlearned in the past year? Oh, in the past year. One of the things that, well, there's a lot of things. One that I don't know as much as I thought I did, that I am willfully ignorant, (laughs) if I'm going to be honest. I think a lot of us have ignorance and we don't like that term, but it's like, there's nothing wrong with the term of of ignorance because we've all been fed many different narratives that has had us upholding systems that we're also working to change. And so, you know, for me, I've been unlearning how white supremacy mindset has been seeped into my life and my work and how do I dismantle that? 
I've been unlearning what does power actually look like in my home life as well as in my professional life. I've been unlearning that certain people are more educated than others. And I don't think I explicitly ever said that, but when you're growing up and you're only seeing, you know, white scientists, particularly white men mm-hmm. or white men that are entrepreneurs, like everyone loves to talk about Gary V. Everyone loved to talk about Mark Zuckerberg until, you know, everything started happening and now they yeah. don't want to talk about Mark. Everyone loves Steve Jobs. You know, everyone loved all these these different quote unquote leaders. But for me, I'm now starting to challenge what does leadership actually mean? And can we acknowledge that people are leaders every single day, just like they're designers every single day? And how do we provide space for people to learn while they're designing and leading and also hold each other accountable to that and recognizing that intention does not equal impact and really focusing on what impact am I making? How have I potentially led to harm? How have I potentially led to trauma and trying to mitigate that? The National Museum of African-American History and Culture, they have this like really great infographic about just like how the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture are seeped into so much of what is, I guess, the American spirit. When you think of like family structure and individualism and work ethic and, and even communication, you know, aesthetics, et cetera. When you really start looking and examining just how much of that has been molded and shaped by just whiteness in general, it's staggering. It's mm-hmm. staggering because like some of it, I'll be completely honest, some of these are traits that I pride myself on. Like, yeah, I try to be on time and, you know, mm-hmm. organized. And that's not to say that yeah. not being on time and not being unorganized is a, is a black thing or whatever. But it's amazing how much of that is sort of seeped into like, this is what it means to be a professional in this yeah. country or something like that. So, yeah. And how do we like shatter that notion? Like who gets to actually define professionalism just like who gets to define i mean not uh, yeah professionalism not perfectionism who gets to also define what success looks like mm-hmm. you know it's like we need to acknowledge that we are upholding the systems that we are trying to change and so i now have been viewed because i'm in different fellowship programs but people tend to look at me as like a unicorn and sometimes i think they look at me as like an innocent ignorance, but not in a positive way because I come in and I'm like, I'm not playing the game. I'm not code switching. I'm not doing any of these things that we've been taught to do. And there's groups that I'm in where they're like, well, no, you need to sausage make. And I'm like, I'm not making, this is literally what they call like (laughs) playing the game. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not making sausage. Like I'm not doing that because I don't want you to sit there and think that I agree with this oppression. I don't want you to sit here and think that my silence means yes. And so I tend to be a person that will vocalize my opinion. I know when I should take a step back and I'm continually working on that. And at a certain point, if I feel that there's like these stereotypes or narratives that's being shared and it's like, well, we'll just keep it going because it makes us comfortable. I'm willing to sacrifice what I have for that. Like I accepted years ago that I would be okay with whatever consequences come my way from being authentic. Mm. And 
I've actually been happier because of it. Have we lost funding opportunities because I have literally told funders that they were part of the problem? Yes. Have we gained opportunities because I have been very authentic to our values and the staff subsequently feels that they can do the same? Yes. And so it's understanding that no matter what decision you make, whether you decide to be silenced, whether you decide to play the game, whether you decide to not play the game, there's going to be positive or negative consequences either way. And it's really determining which ones are you okay with. And for me, I think back to the ancestors that I don't know because I don't know my ancestry. And that bothers me so much. I have no idea who my ancestors are, period. And I wonder if they sit and look at me and one, have heartbreak because we there's such a disconnect from my generation from theirs that we don't even know who they are. But then also, can do they look at me and say, she is fighting the fight that we had to navigate and endure all this trauma and torture and pain And she's fighting it on behalf of us from our past, as well as for the future generations. That is what I think about and like how I show up authentically, because as far as I know, I'm only going to live one life. And so my job is to sit here and try to make your life feel comfortable so that I don't shake the, you know, shake something like, no, what we need to be uncomfortable with being being in discomfort because that's usually where we grow and learn. And discomfort does not mean being in trauma. So I want to make sure that there's definitely some clarity on that. But being uncomfortable and learning through that discomfort, I'm okay with that. And I made that decision a few years ago. Speaking of decisions that you made a few years ago, let's talk about AIGA. Now, you were heavily involved with AIG. I remember when I had you back on the show, like you convinced me to join because I I mean, I had people on the show before and most of the experiences that they talked about with AIGA, usually at the chapter level, were largely negative. And at the time, you were the co-chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. You were also the VP of the St. Louis chapter of AIGA. And you were telling me like, you know, if you want to kind of change the game, you can kind of do it from within by joining the task force. And so I joined AIGA, joined the task force. You know, we both served on the task force together. But late last year, you left AIGA and you gave a a public statement in a public video where you listed the reasons why. And I'll link to that video so people can check it out in case they, they haven't seen it. But I have to ask, like, what does life look like for you now on the other side of AIGA? Oh, so, okay, I want to make one quick correction just so people know. So I was the founding chair of, I like to call the third iteration of the task force. Okay. Um, and so that we have clarity because, again, there's a history of erasure just in general in our society, right? And I want to acknowledge that there was a task force in the 90s. There was a task force in the 2000s. And then I was the founding chair of the 2010s version of the task force. And so I want to definitely give recognition to the leaders uh, that was doing the work, <laughs> you know, even before I came and they, they were doing the work and then they left. Right. And one of them was Albert Bass. Uh, another one, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Bass. Oh, Andrew, thank you. Andrew yeah. Bass. Right. Cause you've talked to Andrew, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Andrew Bass. And then we also have Cheryl Miller, which was the nineties version. and you know, she wrote the 1991 article and worked with print. And I know she's still doing work now. 
since I've left AIGA, I have had less headaches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Arguably, uh, this last summer has brought some of them back, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but I have had less headaches. I've had honestly more clarity. And what was interesting is that I was already grappling with this question and last fall before I resigned, and I was on the national board at the time. If I would stay, and I know there's like this narrative within AIGA with some folks where they seem to think that you know, I was leaving because I wasn't happy how things were going. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't happy about how things were going. Yeah. But for me, part of it, and I was actually starting to have this discussion with myself, my family, my friends, is that I wasn't seeing myself align with what the mission of AIGA was. Mm. And uh, because I felt that with my work being around equity design, social impact design, AIGA wasn't really speaking to me. And I was saying that even internally for years, like, hey, the only reason I'm here is because I've been here for so long. Mm -hmm. You're actually not talking to me and my own career and where I'm going. So there was a disconnect just on my own personal journey and path. Uh, And then uh, I read this poem called The Bell Stand, which I recommend uh, reading it. And within this poem, it talks about how this individual was able to get this beautifully crafted bell stand together in a a certain amount of time. And the King who he was creating it for asked, how did you get it this way? And he talked to, and the the bell stand creator talked about how he focused on only that for, and let everything else go because Mm -hmm. he knew that bell stand was his purpose. And I started to ask myself, what is my personal and professional bell stand and realized that AIGA actually wasn't, feeding into my bell stand. And so that's, so I kind of made a decision to leave. And then honestly, they started doing bullshit. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it even made it easier for me to go, yeah, no, I'm good. And so it was, it was partly personal, like not seeing the alignment anymore. And then part of it was also just internal erasure of not only my contribution contributions of others that have been doing work it also was kind of internal in my opinion devaluing of particularly designers of color i was actually on the board when timothy bar levens wrote his second article <laughs> about aig mm. being proponents of white supremacy i was the one that presented that article to the board because i knew if i didn't they would try to present it in a narrative that wasn't the way it should have been received. And so I presented the article and said, you all should read this. And I agree with what he said. Let's have a conversation. Led to a lot of different internal conversations, many different internal statements by leadership saying that, oh, we will make these changes and we will talk to these groups and we will do X, Y, and Z. And it never happened. Mm -hmm. And I realized again, that AIGA was about talk and not about doing, not about mitigating harm. And I started to question if people were doing this work for their own recognition versus actually doing the work for the improvement of our industry. And so for me, I decided that it was best to leave in a December with the video because, I, <laughs> hey, white, just to let you know, a tenet of white supremacy is the written word. No offense mm-hmm. to and so I said, I wouldn't write nothing. You just gonna hear me talk. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did. And then, you know, I kind of left and was happy. I had people reach out, say if they could, they were conflicted. Should they stay? I actually encouraged people to stay if they felt that met with their purpose. 
yeah. and miss you. Yeah. Even though people, again, I think internally thought that I was like so anti-AIGA. I was like, no, if, if this, like I did my time. I did almost 10 years, <laughs> you yeah. know, I did my time. But it doesn't mean you should stop if you feel this is important to you. And then June happened and gaslighting campaigns against Etnet happened. And I shifted my mind from no longer, okay, I'm detached to, okay, no, they need divestment, which is kind of where I'm at now. And just to kind of, you know, flesh out a little bit more of kind of what happened. So, of course, as people know, in June, this was when I think things started to kind of reach a fever pitch as it related to protests around the killing of George Floyd and really just around all of the the killings of black people at the hands of police. And so what you started seeing was this really like increased amount of attention on uplifting and sharing black voices from a lot of organizations kind of giving these public pledges. Yep. AIGA was one of those organizations. And mm-hmm. so there was this very public discourse between you and AIGA and several AIGA chapter leaders and other title holders regarding basically them like stealing your words and your work and not giving you the attribution to say like this came from someone that has worked with our organization. Has the dust settled from all of that? And if so, how do you feel now? Hmm. I think has the dust settle. Have they apologized? No. Okay. Have they reached out to me? No. Not since it really hit ahead. Because a lot of folks don't know that before the Bernie, the new executive director, wrote his letter about what happened, we actually had talked the night before. He had already had his mindset in the set by the time we talked. And, you know, there were several times we both repeated to each other, well, I don't know you. <laughs> like we yeah. each other, I don't know you, which is true because we, when I left, I left in December and he started in January. Mm-hmm. So I actually did not engage with, uh, with Bernie at all. And there was this narrative that's be, that was being spread that apparently, you know, that we came up with this idea together back in 2016, which was actually false. you know and i let him know that and because actually what's interesting is you and i were at a how conference where we both were talking and part of my talk was some of the things that they even put in their statement yeah that was 2016 i think yeah Yeah. (laughs) interesting but as i told and as i told several people for me with the statement it wasn't about them saying that systems are by design no offense. Everyone says things are by design and design industry. That is not the issue I have. The issue I have is the semantics of the entire statement is that systems are by design, particularly harmful systems are by design. Therefore, they can be redesigned. And there's only a few groups across this nation that use that alignment of mm-hmm. the statement. And a lot of us actually work together. We actually co-created the equity design collaborative. So Here's my thing was you didn't even have to give me like my name recognition. You could have just said modify from Creative Reaction Lab, and I would have been completely fine. Yeah, because it, it was from Creative Reaction Lab. I remember because you and I also spoke at Hopscotch Design Festival in yeah. Raleigh, also in 2016. That was and I remember actually. Oh, that was 20. Oh shit. Okay, but I yep. remember because I was I think I was leaving another talk, and I remember walking into your talk. And the first thing that I saw on the slide, it was a, I remember this was a green slide with like light yellow letters, 
exact same verbiage. Yeah. And for me, it was like, it's, it's not <laughs> like, again, like I gave a Ted talk using this language, yeah. you know, like, also you gave a Ted talk. Right. Cause I am a Ted fellow as well. But it, it's like the struggle I had with AIG is that even if there were other groups that were using this language, which there are, and a lot, like I said, a lot of them, we actually work together, but you have never engaged with any of them. You engaged with me for years. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're going to try to present this narrative that you came up with this. That is a problem for me, especially with me leaving publicly in December. And then all of a sudden you're using a language that you've never used before. They never used that language before. They had a program called Racial Justice by Design, which, by the way, I was the catalyst for that program because I called Julie Annixter, the executive director at the time, because this was when, who was it, Philandro Castile was being murdered, like was murdered, like it was hitting ahead again in 2004. 16 and mm-hmm. I called her and said what are you doing about this because there are chapter leaders reaching out to me but they don't feel like national is doing anything to showcase so what are you doing and so literally it was Julie myself Jacinda Walker Ashley Axios who is now the incoming uh, president elect for AIGA National as well as Rich Holland we came together because we represented different parts of AIGA's kind of task force and then came up with racial justice by design, particularly for that town hall. But they have never done anything else beyond that. They have never used that semantics together beyond that. And it was just blatant, just like <sighs> erasure. You know, that's what it, and that's the issue that I have with it. And they made it worse by sending out that gaslighting video, which to me played every single stereotype, uh, stereotypical trope you could think of against a black woman. And to the point where Ashley Axios, yes, she is biracial. She is also white, like very light skinned, went and cued the tears that were very equivalent to white woman tears. And I was livid. I was honestly really bothered because Ashley and I actually were what I considered friends prior to me leaving AIGA. I even had sent her a text in April of this year saying, I know we haven't talked since I left AIGA, but I hope you and your husband are doing well. I know COVID is affecting everyone. Please be well. I literally had like, and so to have this, like, (laughs) honestly, power regiment tried to attack me, but what they didn't realize is that I had authentically been doing work for years and you can't erase when people do work through authenticity and purpose and they don't do it just for their own ego. And so what they found was that they received a greater backlash than they expected. They thought that they could push me under the rug like I've seen them try to do other individuals. Literally, I've seen them do this. And they couldn't. And it's biting them in the butt even now when they try to reach out to another group. And they said, do you realize that you're asking us about our framework? And Antoinette actually was in the room when we started brainstorming around the framework. And she helped us develop it from the beginning. Mm. I remember, I think this was, was this last year? When was the leadership summit in Atlanta? Was that 2018, 2019? I remember I was leaving a restaurant here in Atlanta on Crescent Street, leaving this seafood restaurant called Lore. And it was me, it was uh, Simon Satello, who was with AIGA Portland, and Carlos Estrada with mm-hmm. AIGA Detroit. We had just had dinner. And I remember, I remember the two of you 
in the street, like almost arm in arm, because y'all were going to dinner or something somewhere else, I think. And I was like, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So when I saw how this all unfolded on Twitter, I was like, what is happening? What is going on? Yep. And And I'll be completely honest, several people from AIGA contacted me like, what is this? And I'm like, I'm not even a member anymore. Why are y'all talking to me about this? I mean, I know why they're talking to me about this, because I know both of y'all and have been affiliated with AIGA, but like just to see it all happen the way it happened online, especially at the same time when there's public unrest happening in the streets and you got companies that are stepping forward talking about they're for black lives. It was just such a weird mind fuck. I mean, I'm saying this as an observer, like I don't know if you and Ashley have talked since this incident. Have you talked since this incident? So we we have not talked since this incident. But like I said, actually, Ashley and I really haven't talked since I resigned in December. Oh. And like I said, I was the one who initiated a message to her in April. And she did respond and said, you know, thank you. I hope you and your family are doing well as well. That's literally all we've had. And which is very disheartening in itself because like I'm a Taurus, <laughs> you know, and if anyone, does, <laughs> if anyone does Enneagram, you know, I'm a number eight, I'm a challenger, but okay. I, like, but I'm a Taurus. Right. And so Taurus don't notoriously let people in and eights are the same way. We don't really let people in. And when we do, we trust you for her in that video to even say, well, I have voicemails of Antoinette being angry. Oh, I could tell you exactly what voicemail she's probably talking about. <laughs> and that was the one when I left in December when she, just to be honest, blatantly excluded me from something that she told me that I was in. And then I found out from other community members that they were receiving the narrative that I just wasn't showing up to meetings, even though I never received any invitations. And so hmm. like, I know exactly what she's talking about. And oh yes, she almost got that real internet, like, like that real Normandy, like St. Louis internet. She almost <laughs> got that one. Okay. She almost, she ain't fully get, no one really has seen St. Louis Normandy internet because it's a, I don't usually let people, well, I don't, as I've grown, I don't usually let people get me so upset. But the biggest thing that upsets me is when I trust someone and they break that trust. And I, I will admit, I cried. You know, I, I cried of frustration and anger. I cried because we were in a pandemic and I couldn't even just like get to DC to talk to her. <laughs> yeah. Like I, you know, it was, and it was just like AIGA has a history of, of over a century now of not centering black people. But one of the things I want to say is just because. We now have black individuals because Bernie is, is, is he's, I mean, not Bernie, Benny, he's black. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ashley is biracial. Just because we have them in leadership doesn't mean that they have not had to play the game of white supremacy to get to where they are. And so mm-hmm. I don't want to say, like, because the reality is that we all have white supremacy tendencies within us. Yeah, I was going to say that. We've all kind of had to play that game <laughs> right? at some we've point. We've all had to play that game. And when we were talking about unlearning earlier, we've all had to continue to do that if we are doing that now, because some of us haven't even recognized how much we're upholding it, and we have to start that journey. And mm-hmm. so I'm not I'm not blaming them for that, but I would, would at least prefer if they acknowledge it. But I feel like, and others have told me this, that are internal, 
that they were so focused on, yeah, because that's the thing. I know a lot of folks they, that they were so focused on their own ego and their own ups, the being upset of being challenged that they weren't even looking at the bigger picture. And I think they actually hurt their own reputation even more by just trying to stick so hard, like gung ho on it. And so I have not engaged with AIGA. Folks have asked me if I want to engage with healing with AIGA. I said, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to go to the red table with AIGA? No, I don't want to talk about entanglements. <laughs> no entanglements. <laughs> I don't want to go there. You know, and usually when I depart from like situations or group or individuals, I say, you know, I wish them well. And, you know, and I wish them the best. I'm be honest, AIGA ain't even on that level for me. They just there. And yeah. I think it speaks to something that when when all of this happened, I wasn't the only person that was calling AIGA out. Many people were. There were a mm-hmm. lot of stories that started to came uh, come out. There were people that sent me personal messages that I would not say what they said, but of things that they experienced. They were not only black, just to be clear. And there was also like just this, uh, like I think AIJ really need to look at their culture to see how they can create change. But I also think AIJ just needs to dissolve and something else needs to come up that particularly are meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that one of the things we need to remember as well is that the chapters are their own 501c3 institutions. And the biggest question that myself and other some other members on the national board as well as on chapter boards have been asking is what value does national bring to the chapters because people don't know mm. i didn't know that chapters were their own separate kind of entities like that though hmm is that yeah. new or is that, has it always been that way it's always been that way huh. they, are literally, they are literally their own 501c3s uh and so they is in a sense like you might well say they're licensing or they're franchising or they're like bought into the network, but technically yeah. there are their own, there are their own entities. Yeah. It kind of sounds like a license to think because chapters also have to pay, like don't they have to pay dues to national, like a certain percentage of member dues or something like that. They do. So what, for the members um, that they receive from the chapter level, that part of that funding does feed into national. Um, and for years, this is not, I'm not the only person that said this, but for years, um, some chapters actually have stopped focusing on membership because they found that the building an authentic community was more important to them than just trying to get people to become members yeah. of the organization. And so unfortunately, AIGA has been kind of decreasing in member numbers for years now um, because, you know, it, it's, I think it's also just a changing of the times with, you know, online meetup groups. Like it's, it's like, yeah. Do what is the value again of AIGA that people can't seem to get from other places? Mm. That's very true. I mean, from what I recall from the time that I was with AIGA, I left in, well, I left the task force in 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I left being a, well, actually, I didn't leave being a member. They, uh, they actually revoked my membership. (laughs) (laughs) they revoked my membership in 2018 did i not not tell you the story they revoked your membership okay let me let me go ahead let me go ahead and tell the story right quick so (laughs) 2018 i think was the last year that they had the aiga gala in new york and so we were we were both there at the gala. I got the Stephen Heller Prize for cultural commentary that year yes you did it was amazing that took place on april 20th 
Um, I think I had swung by the office that May, because I was back in New York in May for uh, the company I worked for at the time, Glitch. They We had our annual on-site that year, and so I had a break in the schedule. And actually, it was me and I, me and Cheryl Miller went, actually, now I think about it. Uh, Cheryl Miller and I both went to headquarters. I think we were there for like two hours. I recorded video. It was like me, her, Julie, uh, Letitia Wolf, some other folks. And so I actually got to like see what AIGA headquarters is like and everything. And, mm-hmm. uh, I got to see my like framed award. And cause Julie was like, yeah, we'll mail it to you and everything like that. And so that summer I had been going to other cities for, I mean, well, one for work, but as I was in those cities, I was also talking to AIGA chapters there just to kind of get a sense of like where they are on diversity and inclusion and stuff they're trying to do. I was in Portland in September. I was in Philly in, I think, July, I believe. And I had always been in sort of regular conversation with AIGA DC and stuff. And so I'm out here like on my own, not part of the task force, like just a like regular ass member, like doing this work kind of on behalf of the organization. And so September rolls around and uh, I think I was re- I was replacing my debit card information on a few sites because I got a new debit card and I went to the AIGA website to go and update it. And it, I log into the membership portal and it shows that they revoked my membership on April 30th, like 10 days after the gala, after I got the award. I had no communication from AIGA about it. Not a single person wrote me, sent a, a smoke signal, a postcard, a voicemail, a tweet, anything. So I had no idea. I'm operating off of the good faith that I'm because, look, they were taking money on my account every month. So clearly I was right. a member. So I'm operating in that good faith that I'm still a member. And then they revoke my membership. And I really have to think like, what, what is a, what am I getting as a design professional from this organization? Mm-hmm. And I'm taking into account, not just as a member, but also with the volunteer work, which I, I mean, think, you pay to volunteer. <laughs> yeah, you pay to volunteer. I, I want to be clear about that for anyone that might be thinking about that with AIGA, all this stuff that Antoinette is talking about and chapter leaders and stuff. This is all volunteer. This is no one's job unless you're at headquarters. So we're all doing this like for the love of the craft and because we want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So for this to happen without this communication and me really thinking like, but with the past experiences I've had with the task force, with my local chapter, which like thinking about all those experiences together, I'm like, am I really getting anything by being a member of this organization? And I didn't feel like I was, so I didn't renew And it was then, because I think I tweeted, I think I just did like one tweet, like, I'm not renewing or something like that. Mm -hmm. When I tell you AIGA, like, jumped into my DMs like a quantum leap, like, oh, my God, are you serious? Well, well, what can we do? to? It's too late now. The Mm -hmm. damage has been done. It's Mm -hmm. too late. And I didn't want to make a big stink about it or anything, but I was just like, I'm, why? Why? (laughs) Exactly. And it's. Interesting, you bring that up because, and I don't want this to be like an anti-AIGA, but I'm being no, honest. no, no, no. It's it's not. I mean, but 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 I, I mean, I think the reality. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say the reality is we both have been members. Yep. We both have put in our like blood, sweat, tears. You definitely more than me in yeah. terms of helping to make the organization better and more inclusive. So we're speaking from positions of authority with this. We're not just like, yeah. you know, mad black people. Like, oh, yeah. we we can bag it up. Oh yeah, my kid like my kids literally were babies when I started with AIGA. My kids just turned twelve last month. Wow. Like because I have twins. And so I'm like, my kids literally grew up 
with AIGA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm happy they were able to see me in leadership because I actually used to bring them to chapter meetings, things of that nature. And at the same time, I'm like, how much time could I have been with them? Um, that I was dedicating to this organization. But, you know, it, it's interesting with the membership, like, <laughs> change, because I, when I decided to leave in December, and I'll admit it was, it was slightly petty, but I'm okay with the pettiness. Like, sometimes petty is underneath, like, it's, it's in here, and I will take it. And when I left, I literally called because there was no way for me to, like, cancel um, my, my membership easily. So I, like, called and was like, cancel my membership. And I had also paid to go to the conference, uh, at that time, which was, um, what was it? 20? Well, what was supposed to be the 2020 conference. And I was like, yeah, no, like give me my money back. And they were like, well, there's half of like, we, it's at the 50% point now. Um, would you like for us to maybe just donate that to uh, someone in need? And I was like, no, I would like for you to give me my money back. Yeah. (laughs) That's because real. I'm like I, I don't even trust you all to use that money to actually give a scholarship mm-hmm. for a black, Latinx, indigenous, Pacific Islander, et cetera, person that actually would need to gain access to this space. So yeah, it was very, very interesting. So one last thing about AIJ, and I promise we're gonna move on to other stuff, but um you were really instrumental in bringing about the AIGA design census. I remember from our conversation back on the the podcast in 2014, talking about the need to have some type of like overarching design survey for the industry. And, you know, they've put the census out. They have gotten data from it. And that sort of stat around 3% has really kind of floated around a lot as it relates to the number of black people in the industry. What are your thoughts on the census now that you see it kind of out in the public like this? Oh, gosh. Jeez. Um, So... There's a lot, there's a lot of projects that we were a part of creating. Like, I don't know if you remember when we wrote the 2020 fund proposal. I do. Yeah. When we were pushing for. NEA um, funding, I think. Yeah. It was like a full-time diversity, equity, inclusion director mm-hmm. as a staff member. And mm-hmm. part of their job would have been the creation of design census. Like we actually have put it in that. They didn't give us the full-time staff member as a director. They gave us a residency program. And then once that person left, they kind of just like <sighs> dissolved yep. it. Right? Uh, Obed, uh, Obed Figueroa. Yep. Obed Figueroa was, was in the row. And then uh, Angelica, there was Angelica that came in a little bit after that. And then it kind of just dissolved. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> design senses, uh, the reason I, so I have a, a love hate relationship with design senses. As stated, we put it in that proposal in 2014, actually, is when we wrote that proposal. I also went through one of their programs called Innovate, where the idea that I was pitching was essentially design census. And everyone kept saying, oh, that's too big of an idea. We don't think that would ever happen. I kid you not. This was like real statements that would happen. Mm. Then all of a sudden, Google showed up. And nothing against Google. We've partnered with Google. But Google showed up and was like, we want to do a quote unquote design census. <laughs> <laughs> I see where this is going. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so they're like, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. You know, let you founders of design census. And so let me just say like the, the staff definitely got some, some ears of, around that. I was like, you have lost your mind. 
(laughs) (laughs) that you are going to erase the work that we were doing back then that I've been pushing for these years and think you're not going to give recognition. Like you're not going to do that. And so that's how I actually started to get um, uh, recognition as the co-founder of Design Census because I had to advocate internally for myself because they had erased me, you, Carlos, Jacinda, Diane, like the folks that literally wrote this proposal, mm-hmm. the years of work, they had erased it, you know? And it was the, the same for Design for Inclusivity Summit that they we've been trying to do for years. I finally brought Microsoft on as a partner. They oh, I remember to, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. They tried to cancel it. Most people don't know they tried to cancel it. But because I was on the national board, I told them absolutely not, and they couldn't stop me. And then all of a sudden, Microsoft receives an AIGA medal award, which also led to a lot of like me, like, are you like, what are you doing trying to like cultivate this a Microsoft relationship when they're actually in a relationship with me? Like, yeah. it was very messy. Um, but with design census, the the problem I have with design census is one, I saw, I think they saw it too much as just like a membership analysis tool and didn't do it effectively. There were times in which I would push for them to be more inclusive of allowing people to define their own identities. Um, this even particularly was around gender identity and bringing and making sure we include like trans representation, gender queer, that people can select these things. And I kid you not, I still remember the staff saying, well, how, how would we measure that? And I'm like, the same way you measure everything else you're asking. In this yeah, take some of that Google money, get an underwriter and make it happen. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Are you serious? Like, you know, you put point, you know, checkpoint A, you know, like, what are we doing? And so I think part of it is that they they weren't, they didn't really understand what it could be. I think they was focused on too much of, well, a sponsor gave us money, so let's just do it, but not really effectively integrate it into uh, our mission and purpose and why we are doing it. I think it became just a project because the sponsor gave money. Uh, I also believe that they, because they don't have any true, authentic, strong connections in communities of color, that the data is skewed, um, which all data is skewed. Let's be clear. All di- sure. data has biases. All data is skewed. Um, one thing I did like is that they at least open source the data. Uh, so I, I was a fan of that piece. But I, even when I look at the numbers, and I'll admit I have a, I do presentation. That slides in there, like design census is in there. It's your I idea. Always, yeah, you know. But I, I always wonder, like it, it was on, like we need to make sure we include. It was a sample size of nine thousand. Like let's mm-hmm. be very clear about that. And our the design industry, one of the biggest challenges that we also have is that we don't even define what we mean by design. And so. Who did you actually talk to? And are you directly doing a design census for graphic designers, for UX designers, for fashion designers, for like what? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. There was a time I remember when uh, back when I first had Timothy Bart Levins on the show, AIGA was reluctant to recognize UX design yes. as design. Yes. They would not even know for years, like years ago when um, uh, Rick was still in leadership they changed their name because AIGA used to be the American Institute for Graphic Artists. They intentionally changed their name to just the acronym AIGA, the Professional Association of Design. 
But yet oh. they spent the time to actually define what do you mean by design? And so even the medalist award that they give out, and I actually was on the medalist committee for two years. Again, I did a lot of work that they try to erase. Um, when I was on the medalist committee, one of the things I kept saying to them was that you recognize that even the way that you have these criteria spread out, you're only focusing on visual communication graphic designers, which you claim it's not the only your only focus, but yet everything you all are doing is not actually being inclusive of what you mean. And so I think there's a lot of internal things that they needed to shift before for design senses to be effective. Um, and I mean, I'm at least thrilled that they're still doing it. I just I don't even know why I don't even know why they're doing it at this point. But I honestly I'm gonna flip it on you. What is your opinion on design senses? I think that that 3% number that gets thrown around, uh, sort of to your point about them not really defining what design is, because that definition is not there, it's been easily conflated by a lot of groups to sort of look at design globally, when that is clearly not the case. If, from what I remember, and I don't know if this was the case with the 2019 census, but like you had to be a member to take the census. Mm-hmm. You had to be a, a paid AIGA member. You couldn't just be regular designer X from, you know, podunk, wherever you had to be a paid member. And so like that already, like you said, it skews the data because it then becomes more of a membership analysis kind of tool than anything else. Um, I changed that. I will say they may have changed that. Yeah. They 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 might've changed that. Um, that's really all that I, I think about is just that like that number gets blown up and conflated in weird ways. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a math major, so I know about mm-hmm. like stats and all that stuff and how easily they can be not even just manipulated, but like the general and this this ties into a much larger issue of a numeracy in the United States. <laughs> like how a lot of people just don't get math and science. I mean, the biggest story of the year. Well, I'm stealing this from an NPR ad. The biggest story of the year is a science story. And I think a lot of the confusion around it is that a lot of people just don't understand science, but that's a whole that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um the design census, I mean, I think I don't know. I think AIGA means well, but certainly given the controlling interest with like whom it's being put out and the fact that it's still, at least from what I could tell, restricted to members doesn't make it indicative of the entire industry and that there should be greater steps by people that use that data to really sort of give the context that the data is in. It's mm-hmm. not just 3% everywhere. It's 3% of AIGA members, mostly in the United States from what I would reckon. Uh, yeah. You know, like it's not it's not everywhere. Like I, I know that there are like institutions and organizations in Europe that are using that stat, and I'm like, don't use that stat. That's not a. Yeah, that's not like, oh, that doesn't apply to you. Like <laughs> it's definitely not global. It's completely domestic, United States. Um, and you know, also I think the biggest issue I have is that okay, what do you actually do with those numbers? Like okay, AI right to be behind the creation of design census. Then what? investments and efforts are you putting in to actually do something to address the disparities in the number and again to me it came off as it was a cute project to put out when Mm -hmm. we were talking about design census um and there was one time it was like creative census design census what do we call it um but when we were talking about it we also was talking about okay and using that data to change initiatives for X, Y, and Z internally and also industry-wide. And so when the Diversity for Inclusivity Summit happened, that wasn't just AIGA, and believe me, I intentionally set it up that way. There were 
representatives from different corporations. There were representatives from community design groups that, you know, like it was across the board. Mm-hmm. And the point of what, what was supposed to be the point, if AIGA actually wasn't going to invest in and they didn't, uh, was to take the data from this convening or that summit and actually develop high level strategies that we would then measure ourselves on how we effectively were meeting those goals. And in many cases, like thinking about what does an inclusive design industry look like through the lens of indicators? And then how are we going to measure ourselves to improve the indication, whether it's internally within our organization or externally as a collective and collaborative movement within the design industry? And I think AIJ was too short-sighted in that. And so they, like most institutions, in my opinion, focused only on how do we use it to make ourselves look good? And then since kind of performative inclusion mm-hmm. uh, opposed to how do we actually take this information and create change investment, et cetera, um, that will actually benefit the industry overall. And to me, they, they just didn't do it. And I don't see them doing it in the future. I don't see them doing it in the future either. I mean, just from the time and, and maybe this has changed with the task force, but even from the time that I spent on it, it just felt like the task force was very reactive and not proactive. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't really a lot that it seemed like AIGA could put out unless it went through several levels of yeah. like bureaucracy or approval or anything. Like you would think that with them sort of rebranding themselves as a professional association for design, that they would get out in front of more issues as right. it relates to this and not just collect the data and then wait and see what happens. Like put out a statement or something. I mean, do I have faith that AIGA will kind of create those programs? Absolutely not. They can barely get people in to work for them in that respect. So I don't think that they're going to be able to do something for free, please. No. Uh, I I do think, you know, and it's funny, uh, you know, you mentioned project osmosis earlier. I actually spoke with Vernon, a uh, couple days ago. So for folks listening, he'll be on the podcast in a few weeks. But um, I also spoke with uh, <laughs> I spoke with Mitzi Oku, who did the Where Are the Black Designers uh, oh. half day conference uh, that was back in June. And, you know, I, I when I was talking to her, I kind of said, you know, one of the important things that and we did this actually off off of tape. But I was like, you should really think about putting together like some type of data around this, like around the industry, because AIGA has its design census, but it's really only for AIGA members in terms of what that data represents. Like there's still to this date in 2020, there's still no like overarching data or, or survey that could be used to really sort of see what this looks like for the industry. Um, have, Have you heard of the, God, what's the group called? The black, Artists and Designers Guild, BADG. Oh, no. I, I know of a few other ones, but I don't know that one. So this B- BADG came about in, I think, a couple of years ago. It's a it's mostly uh, for, at least the, the design that it caters to is architects, furniture designers, interior designers, etc. Um, Joe Motariku, who for folks that are listening is episode 225 on the show, um, he's a data scientist and he's one of the like founding members of the group, I believe. And like, they put a survey together and like, they use that to kind of guide the conversation around diversity of designers in those design industries, because they've done what AIGA has not done in that one, they've defined 
this is the design that we're talking about. And two, they've made sure that the numbers don't just speak to members of their guild. They're talking to people. They're talking to practitioners everywhere. So that's a great thing. I love that. I think there just needs to be more of that data out there. I mean, AIGA certainly, you know, we're not trying to make for folks listening. We're not trying to make this like we're ragging on AIGA. We wouldn't be this passionate about it if we didn't care that we want to see the industry change in meaningful and impactful ways. It's unfortunate that this organization, even in its, you know, 100 plus year tenure has not done more to really make that happen. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. I say that to say, even now in 2020, there is ample opportunity for anybody to step out there and create their own organization or make their own survey and get the data. Like, Just because one group is doing it doesn't mean that you can't do it, too. I'm not necessarily saying reinvent the wheel, but, like, all the wheels ain't round. You know what I'm saying? And make your own table. To me, focus on going to others, make your own. Like, in my case, I never thought that I would become a serial entrepreneur. But when I didn't see things, I created it. Yeah. And, you know, and and through the creation, also collaborating with a lot of folks as Mm -hmm. well to do the job and get things done. And so, yeah. Like it, I think many times we look at institutions and say, well, they historically have been here and they have this quote unquote power, but there's also power in collective and there's power in community on the ground. And it doesn't just have to be this institution that's been around for decades. But when you think about even like, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement that began with a hashtag that then led to uprisings in different parts. Ferguson was a part of that, which then led to actual movement for black lives and has led to, and, and black lives is, is not a moment. It's, it's, it's a movement. It's not just, Oh, if you're only affiliated with the organization, but I want to recognize also that there's people in the organization doing work. There's people in color of change that also uh, color for change that did the same thing. That was like, I want to create change, particularly at that time it was in the media industry. Now they're doing larger things like, Many of the ideas that we see and many of the shifts that we're seeing started as ideas and people saying I enough is enough and I want to fight for justice and equity and liberation. And then they're working to do that. So know that we all like everyone listening is a designer that have the power to affect outcomes. And so think about what outcomes are you trying to affect and then create and or join efforts to actually get to that outcome. Right. So. You've been on a lot of huge stages. We talked about the fact that you gave like a TED talk (laughs) and you've sat at the tables of a lot of big companies and organizations. And so you bring this perspective that not a lot of people in this industry have being a black woman that has done this. Mm -hmm. What do you think is preventing black designers from becoming like those next leaders of design? So the reality is that, it is a positive and it's a negative that is all about who you know. And uh, the thing about it is like, for instance, when you look at a lot of folks that are looking to hire people in the organization, they tend to focus on their own networks. Um, and when you also, when they also look to promote, they tend to focus on the ones they're closest with. And we know historically um, black folks, as well as indigenous communities, I want to highlight tend to tend to not really already be in a room. Mm-hmm. Uh, APR is through a lens of, to- lens of tokenism. Um, and then we tend to be looked over for different uh, avenues and opportunities. I think uh, part of it is also 
this uh, bias um, and narrative that we have around, as we stated earlier, like what professionalism actually means, uh, like even down to what hair, like how do you wear your hair, you know, and mm. what, what type of mannerisms do you have? And, and, you know, and then you run into like respectability politics, like what, like it, it, for instance, when people talk about black, they, they make it seem like black is a monolith, which is not, <laughs> you know, like black yeah. in different shapes and forms. And, you know, as a black woman, I've learned that with having a double historically underinvested identity of being a black and a woman, many people don't know what to do with me. Um, and in turn, when I am shattering the stereotypes and narratives that they have, it makes them very uncomfortable. Uh, and one of the biggest things I have to grapple with that have made me frustrated, it's made me cry, it's made me just infuriated is this angry black woman narrative of uh, that I always have to deal with and that, you know, and, you know, d- am I deserving of my space and, you know, all of these things. And so for me, you know, I ended up being in a situation where I created my own and I want to be very, very, very conscious and very honest about the creation of my own is that I did not come from a quote unquote privileged background. Like I came from a um, family that was in poverty, goal of making $19,000 a year. When I decided to found Creative Reaction Lab, my my family, when I was decided to found Creative Reaction Lab, my family and I actually lost around 70% of our income. Wow. So that I can pursue that hope and dream. And so, and I went three years without any pay. And so that led to a lot of sacrifice. It led to moments where my husband and I had $10 and we were trying to see who was going to eat what. Um, and, but it, it, but it was all worth it. And so I don't want to sit here and say, create your own without actually looking at the fact that not everyone have the privilege to do that. But I also want to recognize that I didn't have the privilege to do that. Mm. And so, you know, but I still did it because I believed again in my purpose and why I was doing what I was doing. And honestly, when you grew up eating ramen noodles, it don't really bother you if you go back to eating ramen noodles. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'll be honest. It's like some folks are like, well, you know, I can't eat hot dogs. I'm like, I grew up eating that. So it is yeah. what it is. Um, but, you know, I think and the other part I want to say is like there's external versus like the people that are traditional leadership. But I think part of it is also ourselves. Like we don't I've been in situations where groups of folks felt that they weren't good enough. And we there's data that shows, like, for instance, that women, um, we will see a job description, and if we can't hit every single mark, we won't apply. Whereas men will look at it and say, well, I hit three out of the 25, I'm going to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it's the same thing also with people of color. I've had to literally mentor folks that, in my mind, was more experienced than me to join leadership positions. And I quote, many of them have said, Oh, I didn't, I don't think I'm qualified enough. And I'm like, how are you not, how are you not qualified enough? Like who (laughs) told you this? And so there's this narrative that we also have with ourselves that we may feel like that we aren't deserving of certain roles. um, And that can get in our way. And then there's also where we know we deserve that role and stereotypes, um, status, definitions also um, limits us from getting that position that we truly many times deserve. How do you define success now? Yeah, it de- I mean, it depends on 
the situation and scenario. I, I guess for me, and I was actually just saying that telling my sons this is that my idea of success is that when my life is over and it will be one day that I have left behind a legacy. And for me, a legacy could be with just one person that I have created an impact on someone's life where the work around equity, liberation and centering kind of creative problem solving in that is pushed forward. Um, because like, and I, again, because I lost my brother, when my brother died, I started to really think about legacy a lot more because my mm-hmm. uncle had died prior, five years prior. So on my grandmother's side of my family, um, the last <laughs> like three, four, if not more generations, um, black men have not made it past the age of 56. Wow. Like, literally. Um, and even on my father's side, I don't even, I didn't even know my grandparents because they passed when my dad was a teenager and he, he is still sad about it. So he doesn't talk about them. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot of history that's lost. That's a lot of legacy that's lost. And so, you know, when I think about my brother with him being 14 at the time, he didn't have children, <laughs> you know, like many times we think about children as legacy, but he didn't have children. He was still a child himself. He was yeah. trying to live his life. And so the only legacy he left behind was our own memory. And then what happens as we continue to move forward and, and we pass, what happens to him? And so that's why we created a foundation in his name to try to keep that legacy alive. And so when I think about success, I try to think about what legacy am I leaving behind for my sons and subsequently uh, the individuals, I won't just say youth, but the individuals that I work with, engage with every day uh, in the work that I'm doing and the life that I'm living. If you could like sit down with the Antoinette from 2014 that I had on the show, like pre Ferguson, pre creative reaction lab, what would you tell her to prepare you for life now in 2020? I would tell her she's on the right path that she's doing what she's supposed to do at that time. I think some folks look at their life and, and have regret, or they look and say, I wish I would have done things differently. Uh, But I'm one of those people that believe that everything that happened was for a reason that has gotten me to the point of where I I am now. And when I look back on myself five years from now, I'm going to look and see a completely different Antoinette. And that's just part of life. And so, you know, that Antoinette, I remember that year was a major pivotal year for me, as I spoke earlier. But the biggest thing is that I I gave myself one new year's resolution. I got rid of all the extra fluff, the stupid stuff, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, let me lose 10 pounds. Like whatever. Like, (laughs) (laughs) right. And I gave myself one new year's resolution has been the same new year's resolution that I've had since then. And it was literally the term follow through. That was Mm -hmm. it. And what's interesting is that right now my family and I are in the process of buying our first home. Oh, and, right. Yeah, I'm like excited and nervous and frustrated about this process for all the people that's going through the house buying. Um, because I don't have a lot of family members that have bought homes. Most of my family are renters. And so this is new for me. But in cleaning up the house and packing, which we're in the middle of doing right now, I found my old sketchbook that I had all, I used to have this sketchbook that I would put all these ideas that I never did. I just put all these ideas and I would sketch them and come up with program plans. 
And on the very last page of that sketchbook that's filled out, because there's many other blank pages, but the last page that's filled out literally is myself drawing the words follow through. Wow. And I thought, like, when I saw it, and this literally was a few days ago, when I saw it, I was like, that's where that sketchbook went. <laughs> that was the, first <laughs> thought. the second thought was, wow, I went from off the paper to real life. Yeah. And it no longer was, let me put this down in a prototyping, low fidelity, let me just imagine on the sheet. Mm-hmm. But let me imagine in real life. And I thought that was such a, it was so interesting to me seeing that after that, after that page, there's nothing else. Hmm. I was, I went and did, <laughs> you know, and I've been following through ever since. And so that, that is, that is the biggest thing for me. And I think that Antoinette is on the right path and she's led to led me to where I am now. How are you using, and this might be a, a, simple response given everything we just talked about over this time, but how are you using your talents to help create a more equitable future? I mean, with creative reaction lab, with and design, like you're, you're putting so much out there in the world already. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's dreams that I, I still somewhat have, even though I'm one of those, like when I was in college, I had my life planned by the day. I mean, every time I changed a major, which I, which I went through five, by the way, but every time I changed a major, I always had a new plan of what my life was going to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, because I could, it's interesting you bring up science. I actually started as a biology major with the intention of being a biotechnologist. And I knew I wanted to study the human genome. And when I reflect on where I am now, in a sense, I moved from wanting to study humanity at the micro level to now doing work at the macro level is kind of how I view it. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, for me, it, it really is understanding that equity is messy, is complex. It is a day-to-day process. It is something that I don't think I will ever fully accomplish in my life. And I'm okay with that. I know that, again, I'm dealing with centuries of work. It's not going to be dismantled in my life. And so not at a systemic level. So what am I going to do at the level that I can touch things to see how we're shifting equity, whether it's equitable pay at the organization uh, or or thinking about creating a culture that is anti-anti-Blackness, right? Or creating a culture that is anti-white supremacy, uh, a culture of um, bringing the personal self in addition to the professional self, uh, and also understanding that I'm on the journey and that I make mistakes and that there's times in which I'm part of the problem and I need to rectify that and continue to do the work uh, and understanding that this is a journey and this is a movement. And so, yeah, like part of it is like when you look at the tangible, it's Creative Reaction Lab, it's and Design, it's my speaking engagements, Maybe one day it'll be a book since keep, people keep asking me. I kid you not. You guys asking me to write a book. And I'm like, who has time for that? Like, I don't know where I'm going to find time to write a book. Um, but, you know, it, those are the tangibles. For me, when I think about equity, I think about the intangible. What the invisible shifts that are happening within myself. And that's more what I'm going to measure myself on. Um, because... I view my work, I usually put it in two ways. One, drops in a bucket, like 
the bucket is equity and liberation. And I'm just putting my different versions of drops in just like everyone else. Um, but then also I view it as cathedral building and understanding that the folks that were building cathedral that started it knew they would never see that cathedral, but they knew that that foundation that they were setting was pivotal. And so I view myself as one of those builders that know that I'm not going to see equity in my life more than likely, but I'm hoping that the foundation I'm building um, whether it's through equity center community design or whatever I'm doing uh, will ultimately lead to that cathedral being as strong, as firm, and as powerful as ever, whenever it does ultimately happen. Well, just to, you know, wrap things up here. And I have to say, this has been such a illuminating and cathartic conversation. <laughs> uh, where can people find you online so they can follow all of this amazing work that you're doing? Yeah. So, um, all of the things I mentioned have websites. <laughs> Except my brother's foundation. We're working on that one. I'm trying to find a designer to help us create this collage of an image for the header. Um, and when I say designer, graphic designer. So mm-hmm. Creative Reaction Lab is at creativereactionlab.com. We are literally on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. I recommend Instagram more than others, but I have an Instagram bias, if I'm going to be honest. Um, you also can find and Design. Um, we have a website and design.co uh, and we actually are about to open the application for our fellowship pretty soon. So please send youth to that direction as well, because uh, we want to be able to support up to our goal this year is to support 15 um, youth across the country in previous years. It's been 10 each year. And then personally, you can find me at my own website, internetcarol.design, which admittedly People like my website, but I'm convinced it needs to be redesigned. <laughs> so I will find a way <laughs> somehow in my time to do that. Um, but then also I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Um, those are the main ones I use. Twitter is a curl design and Instagram is literally my name, Antoinette Curl. And so, yeah, you can find me many places and not to sound arrogant because I really am not trying to sound arrogant when I say this, but you can also just Google me. You'll find yeah. me. I hear that. Well, Antoinette Carroll, I words can't really sum up just how glad I am to have you on the show to sort of give this update, but really just like how proud I am of the work that you've done over the past six years that I've been, you know, fortunate to know you, to work alongside you in some cases. I mean, you've really helped change the face of the design industry. You've helped move the conversation you've really i mean I don't, i'm not i'm not blowing smoke by saying any of this like I when I, you don't blow the smoke if you say it, you believe it. when i when i look back at like you know pivotal moments in the industry over the past few years like you've been there leading the conversation or doing something behind the scenes to really make it happen so i i'm just excited to see what is going to happen next like what you will do next and i think hopefully for our listeners they feel that too so Thank you so much again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to continuing to just support Revision Path. But I think what you all are doing is fantastic. And I could continually telling folks, you need to go there. <laughs> because if you're like, I always get the question, where do I find black? Well, you go there. That's what you <laughs> Don't ask me. Go there. And also support the job board. How about that? Yes. <laughs> Big, big thanks to Antoinette Carroll, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Antoinette and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.